ladies. Take your Bible. Please turn to Genesis 49. We're going to finish up Genesis 49 and go into Genesis 50 today as we wrap up the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph has been about a life in God's hands. That's the title we've given this series. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29, all the way through chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible, there's some available in the seats in front of you, and also uh, be sure to grab one. There's some on the back. On the way out the door on the right-hand side, there are some Bibles that take as a gift from us to you. Genesis 49. Now, one of the hardest uh, things to answer, one of the hardest things to answer is why do bad things happen to good people? You know, putting aside the assumption that there are such things as good people, you know, none of us is truly good. God alone is good. We still realize this is a difficult question. Why do unjust things happen? We've all been around situations, and we've all been confronted with this in one way or another, where there has been a seemingly unjust thing that has happened, where someone who seemingly was innocent was taken advantage of, or something bad happened. Why would God allow unjust things to happen? Why would God allow innocent people to suffer? Why why would God allow wicked men to do bad things? Could God, if he wanted, prevented a particular kind of suffering? It's a very challenging thing. And these questions sometimes begin to form in our minds the seeds of a kind of doubt. that We doubt that God is truly trustworthy. We doubt that God is good. We doubt that God is, is, is faithful. Because we're faced with these things, we, we doubt because we see things from a very limited perspective. And, and because our limited view limits what we can see, sometimes we doubt because we feel the pain, we feel the hurt, and we feel the injustice, and we wonder, where is God? Well, this morning, this passage may not answer all those questions, but one of the things it does is it refocuses our attention, it refocuses us, and helps us understand something that God is doing in specific moments. And this really becomes the climax, becomes the meaning of the story of Joseph. It, it, it helps us see the true meaning of the story that we've been tracking thus far. Let's bow and ask God to bless and dedicate this time to him. Father, we ask you now, please open up our hearts to you and help us to see the realities all around us, to be confronted with the truth that you are a good and loving God. And there's nothing that happens that is beyond your hand. So, Father, we trust you, we rest in you, and we ask that you please open up our hearts to the truth laid out before us in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you read verse 29, the Bible says, Then he, Jacob, charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre at at the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as possession for a burial place. One of the first things we'll see in this passage is this true theme. The title of the message today is God meant it for good. The first point simply this, God's promises are always trustworthy. In the theme of God's faithfulness, God's promises has been strong all, all, throughout this story. God's faithfulness, God's promises, and at Jacob's death, we see here God's promises are dependable. God's promises are trustworthy. We dealt last week with his blessings on his sons, but now we see that God's promises do not fade with our death. 
as we notice his commissioning to his sons, he says that they are to go and find this place, find this cave, and bury him there. Verse 31, if we continue our reading, he says, There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. They buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up on the bed, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. He passed away. He orders them here. He charges them. And what he does is very significant. He says, I know I'm about to die. I know I'm going to be gathered to my people, a way of saying he will be dying. And, he, and when he says that he is going to be buried here, he wants to be buried with his fathers. And this is the third time he's made this request. He's made this request two other times, and God has made a promise to Jacob, and the promise is that I will bring you out of Egypt, and I will bring you into the promised land. We see this in Genesis 46, the promise that was given before Jacob left Canaan. God visited Jacob and told him this. He says, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there in Egypt. And I will bring with you, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. See, Jacob, though, did not get brought up before he died. He knew that if he was going to be brought up again, his burial would have to be in the land of Canaan, would have to be in this cave. And the place that he would be buried was the place that was purchased by his grandfather. If you go back to Genesis 23, which you don't have to, I put it up on the screen here. We see this play out. The field of Ephron, which is in Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field which were within all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. This is important because Abraham wanted everyone to know that no one made him wealthy. He bought this land. This was not a gift to him. And God's promises do not fade with death. Just because Jacob was dying does not mean that God's promises to him had faded. I want you to notice another thing about God's promises being trustworthy, that God's promises may be remembered with our sorrows. A lot of you have had a hard year We've prayed and we've wept with many of you if you've lost family members. We have been with you uh, through difficulty and difficult times. And we notice here that there is always sorrow that accompanies death. That is not something to be ashamed of, that we should be sorrowful, that we should be grieving. Yet Joseph believed God's promises that had been given to them. And still he mourned. There is a, there is a compa- it is compatible that we mourn loss and, and we remember God's promises. Notice the mourning first in verse 1, chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, but such are the days required for those who are embalmed. Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. I don't you notice that Joseph cried. And so far in Joseph's story, every time Joseph cried, every time it was a tears of joy, yet now he cries tears of grief. 
And losing his father, many of you have lost your father. Next week is Father's Day, and that can be painful for you as you remember the loss of your father. Many of you had wonderful fathers. Many of you had, had terrible fathers. And, and Father's Day next week is a, is, is, it hurts you in your heart just to think, uh, and, and you have to struggle with bitterness and anger towards your father. But in this situation, Joseph's love and his grief is poured out as he got to spend those last few years with his father, the years that were stolen from him by his own brothers. Joseph then turns over his father's body to the physicians to embalm his father. Now, we don't know exactly whether these um, physicians were uh, regular people who did the embalming, but there seems to be an indication here that Joseph is making sure that there's no more religious association with the embalming that would happen in Egypt sometimes. He wanted him to be embalmed because he wanted to take his body back to bury it. But in order to do this, he had his physicians do it. And even all Egypt mourned for this patriarch for 70 days. And then he brings a request, verse 4. Going through some intermediaries here, perhaps because he's been mourning and there's no, he's not in any condition to go before Pharaoh. Notice what he says. The days of his mourning were past. Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please go up and bury my father. Let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Joseph acknowledges his responsibilities and his obligations as a prince of Egypt to come back. He would go and he would bury his father, but he would not stay there. He would return to Egypt, and and he knew that one day God's promises would be true, that they could go and fulfill those promises in receiving the land. But Pharaoh responds with an approval here to go up and fulfill the promises that you made to your father. So they make the trip to Canaan in verse 7. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. It was a huge entourage of people as they made their way up to the land of Canaan with this body to bury this wonderful old man who had died in the land of Egypt. And now Joseph, who had only asked to take his father to be buried, now comes with him all of these folks. Uh, It's like all of Egypt goes with him. There's so much more of a blessing than he could have ever imagined. Coming with him are high-ranking Egyptian officials and people in Pharaoh's court. Coming with him are Joseph's family members, including the elders of the house of Jacob, and also a military escort. Look at verse 9. Chariots and horsemen, this huge group of people. And as they come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they mourned there, verse 10, with a very great and solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And it says in verse 11, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad. And they said, this is the deep mourning of the Egyptians. It struck them that the Egyptians mourned so much for this man. So they actually named that place Abel Merizim, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. They named the place there the mourning of the Egyptians. They did not realize that this was Joseph's father who was being buried. They saw the Egyptian group together mourning. Their sorrows were impressive. And God's promises do not negate or downplay our sorrows. We still feel sorrowful when we lose something precious to us. We still should express our grief, but we should express our grief 
inside the promises of God, that is in light of God's promises. There was not a hopeless grief here. Nothing wrong with grieving. In fact, the Bible details their commitment to their father in verse 12 through 14, as he says, So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan. They buried him in the cave at the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, all who went up with him to bury his father, just as they were commanded. They brought the place, they, they, they buried him there, they returned to Egypt, and the brothers are unified in their grief for their father. God's promises are always trustworthy, even through death. We do not fade with death. Joseph relied on God's promises. Joseph relied on God's promises for the future, and there was an understanding that no matter how tumultuous their past had been, God's promises were always trustworthy. Now, as we look at the next part of this passage, we see in verse 15 that God's purposes are always good. We're going to focus in on these truths as we look through difficult times. The first is God's promise. The first, God's promises are always trustworthy. Secondly, God's purposes are always good because sometimes it can be easy to doubt that God is doing what is in our best interest. Look at verses 15 through 18. We'll see the fear of a guilty conscience. Now, before we read those verses, I want to note that one of the times that we struggle with this truth is when we have a guilty conscience. When we struggle with God's purposes or good is when we notice that our sin has caused problems in our lives and in the lives with others, when our sin has had a huge negative impact on us. When we look back and we can trace a line between my bad decisions, my sinful decisions, and the outcome, the consequences of my decisions, that's hard. And we can struggle with our lack of faith. And we see this with Joseph's brothers. Look at verse 15. Because they respond differently to the passing of their father. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive your trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I want you to notice a couple of things here, that there's two different responses. Joseph had been forgiving of his brothers when they came to him. Remember that. But it does not appear that his brothers were actually admitting their faults. They still had a guilty conscience, and at some point it occurred to the brothers that their father being dead meant things might have changed between them and Joseph. I mean, Joseph might have been doing all this just to appease their father, just to keep him happy. Remember, that had been part of the reason they had said over and over again that, that he was on death's door, and if you did this, then he would not live. If they killed Benjamin, then he would not live. If, if they did not return back, then he would not live. And so they're thinking to themselves, perhaps Joseph has been kind to us because father was still alive, and now that father is dead, Joseph's going to turn around, and he's going to do all this evil to us because we did evil to him. They faced the possibility that Joseph would actually hate them for the evil that they did. Now, this is the first reference we have in the Bible I'm, 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 I'm aware of, the first reference from the brothers actually acknowledging that what they did was evil to Joseph. 
Up to this point, they had been, it seems, kind of uh, maneuvering around that fact and pretending like it really wasn't that big of a deal, or perhaps they never actually admitted this, but there was still a guilty conscience here. The closest that they came was in verse 16 of chapter 44 when they said that God found out the iniquity which they had done, but they, they don't explicitly say that they did iniquity to Joseph. They just talk about their own iniquity, but finally here they admit they did evil to Joseph, and they're afraid their brother's going to come back and punish them. Now, if you have a brother, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have two. And, and there's a sense in which you, you, are, you, you are aware, especially here in this situation, Joseph had gone through the ranks and now was a very powerful man. All Joseph had to do was give the orders and the brothers could have been killed. We know this from ancient history. We know this from uh, studying Egypt, that these people were extremely powerful, and Joseph had it within his grasp to do this. So what did they do? Verse 16 tells us the brothers sent messengers to Joseph, perhaps to test the waters. They were afraid what might happen. They send these, these messengers to Joseph, and notice what they tell him. They say, hey, um, before dad died, he told us that you, he told you to forgive us for the sin which we committed against you. Now, it's not explicitly said in the text but I'd be willing to bet that they made that all up. It, it really seems, by the way they say it, and the fact that Jacob does not say anything to that effect, we've had Jacob speaking for two chapters, and he has not said anything like this so far, that the brothers, out of their fear, make up a story about their dad in a way in order to appease their brother, hoping that he does not chop their heads off. How does Joseph respond? Joseph responds with weeping. Previously, he wept with tears over his father's passing. Now he weeps because he realizes the massive guilt that his brothers have been carrying with them. He weeps because he realizes the grief and the pain and how this one event where they sold their brother into slavery had been haunting them their entire adult lives. And now at the end of their lives, they are looking at each other and they cannot stop thinking about this. They are, they are so nervous. They are so insecure. And he finally hears the words, of true reconciliation. He realizes that he has it in his hand, the ability to cut them down. Joseph could take vengeance on his brothers. If he were to desire to do so, he could destroy them and eliminate them, but he's overwhelmed with emotion, and instead, he does the opposite because they come and they fall before him. Look at verse 18. His brothers went, and they fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph's brothers come after sending the group ahead of themselves, and finally they come and fall down before Joseph, once again fulfilling that, that prophecy that was given earlier that Joseph had, that his brothers would bow before him. And Joseph sees his brothers as humbled and as fearful, and their guilty, guilty conscience still ruling their hearts. But I want you to notice the faith of a forgiving heart. Notice the contrast between Joseph's response and his brother's response. Verses 19 through 21, give to us, what is perhaps the, the central aspect of the whole story of Joseph? This is what the story is about. And in great contrast to the fear of his brothers, the victim of the crime, Joseph the victim, responds with the faith of a forgiving heart. Joseph, verse 19, said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke 
kindly to them. All that has happened to Joseph has been beyond his control. Think about all that has happened to him. Yet he tells them, do not be afraid. It was obvious they were afraid. They were trembling before him. Their knees were knocking. They were probably slurring their speech. They were nervous. They were maybe speaking a million miles a minute. Who knows the reasons or what was the giveaway. They were sweating. Whatever it was, they were nervous. They were fearful. And Joseph extends his hand and says, don't be afraid of me because am I in the place of God? Am I in God's place that I would strike you down? God owns vengeance. God owns punishment that does not belong to man. Am I in the place of God to exact vengeance and punishment on you? Friend, it's not your job to stand in the place of God. It's not your job to to exact revenge. Some people say, I don't get mad, I just get even. Friend, that is sinful thinking. The person who, who obsesses over vengeance and obsesses over revenge, you are standing in the place of God. You are desiring to exact revenge. It's not your job. Vengeance belongs to God alone. Romans chapter 12 says us repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. The picture is that you are going to frustrate and confuse your enemy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Who am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me. Think about all the evil things that Joseph's brothers did to him. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit, and they ate a meal while he was in the pit, screaming and crying that they release him from that pit. They ignored his call and ate a meal. How callous do you have to be? They sold him to traveling people. There was a caravan of travelers And they saw an opportunity to make money, and so they sold their brother. They misled their own father into him thinking that Joseph had died by dipping his cloak that he had treasured in blood and showing it to their father and saying, is this your son's cloak? We just found it. And his father is assuming that he is. And all these things had an intention from the brothers. Their intention was clear, evil against their brother. And they had succeeded in doing evil against their brother. They were, they, were, they were willing, and they tried, and they succeeded, yet on all this, there's an amazing truth. God meant it for good. That God was able to take the wicked works of men and work it out for good, that their lives might be rescued. God's purposes are always good. God's purposes are always good. If you've gone through suffering like Joseph, you need to have the same attitude that Joseph has here, a forgiving heart who understands that God can use even the worst of human suffering for a good purpose. There is no suffering that God cannot use for his good, for your good, for his glory. There's no suffering that God cannot redeem for his good purposes. We read earlier, we know all these things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God's purposes are always good. How are your past trials and circumstances going to be used by God? I don't know, and probably you don't know either. Remember, God often tells us what he's going to do, but he very rarely tells us how he's going to do it. But faith 
is knowing that God's promises are always trustworthy and God's purposes are always good. We must be willing to give up vengeance in our hearts and hatred for those who have had ill will toward us. Now, the word always in the last two points points us to the truth that God is faithful, that he is not one who changes. God's purposes are always good. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And God is working his plan, and God is working his purpose. And Joseph provides an example of someone who showed forgiveness rather than retribution. Now, carefully listen to this. When, when you have faith that God is good, you may not fully understand what God is doing, but you can understand why he's doing it. When you understand that God is good, you may not understand what God is doing, but you can understand why he is doing it. Because his purpose is good. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What is the purpose there? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's purpose for you is not your comfort. God's purpose for you is your conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Which is why it may be time when you go through difficulty and you say, this is not fun, this is not pleasant. No one said it would be fun or pleasant. God does not promise a life of comfort. God promises a life of conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to see your trials through that lens? God's faithfulness is everlasting. God's faithfulness lasted first, we see, through Joseph's life. The man who forgave his brother saw the faithfulness of God continue. Even through his last days, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, was also brought up on Joseph's knees. God's faithfulness lasted all the way through Joseph's life, shown here by the fact that he saw his children and grandchildren. God's faithfulness lasted beyond Joseph's life, too. It continued even after he would die. Joseph said to his brethren, verse 24, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. And he will bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then, God, then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. He says, I am dying. But notice what he says. I am dying, but that's not the rest, end of the story. There's more coming after my death. It's not just going to stop with me. When you understand God's faithfulness, you can recognize that God's story is bigger than your life here on earth. God is doing things beyond what you can do here. It's not actually about you. It's what God is doing through you. And he says, God will surely visit you. To visit means much more than just drop by like on vacation. The visit here means God will show up and God will be there and God will intervene on their behalf. And the word visit carries two implications. It carries the implication of judgment and the implication of blessing. And God is involved in both here. God will surely visit you. The message is God is coming. And what will he do? He will bring you out of Egypt and he will bring you back to the land of Canaan. Don't get settled here is what he's saying. Don't put down roots. Remember your pilgrim and a stranger. Remember your homeland is elsewhere. Remember your citizenship is not here. You will return to the promised land. And this is the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the land which he swore to them. That means that I can't stay here either. 
And he says, you need to take my bones with you when you go. As a way of emphasizing this promise, you need to swear to me, Joseph says, you'll take my bones with you and bury them in the promised land. The nation of Israel that would form there in the womb of Egypt would go into the land of Canaan one day, and God had blessed them tremendously. God had blessed Joseph tremendously in Egypt. It had been his home. It had been his place where he had, he had flourished, yet he wanted to be where God wanted him to be. So the embalming meant that one day he could be preserved long enough where they could carry their bones with him. And would you know it? They did exactly that. In the book of Exodus, chapter 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry my bones up from here with you. So they did it. If you keep reading in the story, we find in Joshua chapter 24 that as the people make a conquest of the land and enter the land and, and conquer it as God intended, that the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought out of the land of Egypt, they buried in Shechem. And the plot of ground which Jacob had, brought, had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, and for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance to the children of Joseph. God's faithfulness was established. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews identifies Joseph as having great faith when he said this. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of a departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. It took a forward-looking man who was on his deathbed to recognize that God is still at work. God's faithfulness is everlasting. It doesn't stop with my death. If I drop dead tomorrow, God's faithfulness will continue. It does not matter. Your life on this earth is a short time. But God's faithfulness has always been and will always be. As we finish the story of Joseph, some things begin to show themselves. The story has a special meaning, especially for those who've been mistreated. And in some way, all of us have been mistreated somewhere along the way. I want you to remember that God's promises are always trustworthy. You can rely on God's promises that he makes. And the chief promise God makes is the promise of salvation. Did you realize that? God's promise of salvation is just that. It's a promise. And it takes faith to believe and receive that promise. It doesn't take works. It's, not, it's a gift. Salvation's a gift. And you don't work for gifts. You receive gifts. And God gave us salvation through Jesus Christ by dying, his dying on the cross. Secondly, God's purposes are always good. God's purpose is always good. All things work together for good. The good defined in Romans 8.29 is that we may be conformed to his image, and God's purpose for you is to be Christ-like. This means you need to recognize that God is working and release people from vengeance. Some people carry vengeance in their hearts. Some people think they can do vengeance better than God can do vengeance. Some people think that if they don't handle it, God won't. I've told this story before, so bear with me, those of you who've heard it. But when I was um, a high school I had a massive acne problem, massive. I really struggled, like a lot of teenagers do, with my complexion, and it really bothered me, and it was a very, it was a really sensitive spot for me. You know, I was, I was insecure about it. It really made me un uncomfortable. And uh, I had a younger brother who uh, loved the fact that I had a pimple problem. He had all these names for me. Um, and I won't even go to repeat them because we're here on a Sunday morning in church. But my brother joked with me and, and called me all, all kinds of names and laughed at me and thought it was hilarious that I had uh, pimples and I had complexion issues. And he, 
He had a great time doing that. And, and what can you do? You can't argue with I mean, he was, he was correct. It was pretty gross. I mean, it was pretty bad. What are you supposed to do? Um, so I, 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 I remember my mom one time telling me, she says, Marshall, you just need to just trust that the Lord will deal with him. And, uh, and, so, and so we did. You know, it's like, well, what can I do? But Lord, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I trust in that verse, and I'm just going to let this go and, and be embarrassed by this. Well, would you believe it? One day, my brother had the biggest boil you've ever seen in your life. And it was in the most uncomfortable spot you could ever imagine. So much so that he could not exactly sit down properly. <laughs> we still don't know exactly how this boil came about, but he got a boil so bad that he had to go to the doctor and get it lanced. Now, I hate, I'm sorry, I did this right before lunch. <laughs> but the point is, very simply, that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, you know, sometimes we get in our, we, and I know it's a silly example, but there are lots of sillier things we could talk about. But, you know, it, it's, it's true that God, that God has a way of humbling us and teaching us and doing things. And, and that was, and I was younger, yeah, and I, but I learned something. I learned that God has a sense of humor. And I learned that sometimes God does things better than I could ever do things. And I love my brother. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I love my brother, and, you know, he's... But, but you know, that's, that's just the way we have to... We have to learn... We have to learn to release people of the vengeance that we have in our hearts. If we... The only way to do that is to recognize that God's purpose is at work in our lives. And, and to see people... You know, they meant it for evil, but God is meaning it for good. God can use anything someone does against me to make me more Christ-like. Do you really believe that? If you really believe that, you won't be angry and bitter about your past. If you truly believe that, yes, you've been mistreated, you will not walk around sulking and angry and motivated to do all these things out of anger and fear in your heart. You will not do that because you'll recognize God's hand in your life. Thirdly, God's faithfulness is everlasting. God will not forget about you. God's faithfulness continues. His power does not fade. He always will have the strength what he promises to do. God's work does not go out of date. It does not expire. God's faithfulness continues past our last breath here on earth. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Lastly, I just want to mention this. Jesus was mistreated. And many of you have been mistreated, and you need to hear something and hear it clearly, that Jesus was the most mistreated person in the history of the universe. Nothing even comes close. Why? Because not only was he completely innocent, he wasn't as perfectly righteous. And when he was mistreated, he was mistreated because of you. He was mistreated because of me. Because he went to the cross to pay for our sins, and he took those sins on his shoulder, and he did that not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And Jesus was the most mistreated person in the world. Has anyone treated you worse than they treated Jesus? Absolutely not. Yeah, what did Jesus do? What does Jesus do for us, the ones who mistreat him? What does he do? Does he lash out in anger and vengeance at us? What does Jesus do? He extends a hand of grace 
and he forgives us. Who are we to hold out forgiveness of those who have sinned against us? Who are we to pretend like we are so holy and so righteous that we can have this victim mentality of being righteous because we've been mistreated? Jesus was the most mistreated, and he forgave. We must forgive as he forgave. Jesus was mistreated for your benefit and because of your sin. If you've never come to Christ in salvation, friend, you're still in your sins. And he died to pay the price for those sins. He died on the cross, so you don't have to pay the price for those sins. And I beg you today, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be delivered. Would you do that by faith? God's faithfulness is everlasting. Joseph lived his life in God's hands, and when you're in God's hands, no one can pluck you out. You're in the strongest hands. Whenever we walk to a store across the parking lot, I hold my hand, hold the hand of one of my kids, usually the youngest. And um, they, they sometimes try to get away from me. I don't know why that is, but they want to be free. They want to be independent. They want to go. Um, even if they try to let go of my hand as a daddy, I got a whole, I got a very tight hand, a very tight grip. I am not letting that child out of my sight because I have their hand. They are in my hands. They are guarded and protected by me. That is where our God is, and there's nothing that comes in your life that's outside the providence and love of God for you. Today, we need to submit our past to him. We need to submit our trials to him, submit everything we have to him, release some vengeance, recognize that our God loves us so much. And if you're in his hands, you have nothing to fear. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for the story of a man who was in your hands, who saw your presence in his life. And despite being mistreated, despite being horribly mistreated by his brothers, by those closest to him, yet he forgave. Thank you for the example this is for us today. Lord, we know that your forgiveness is available to anyone who asks. You are there, ready to be received. The gift of salvation is free. And so today, Lord, if there's someone here who needs to be saved, I pray that they would trust you, that they would pray in their heart and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and, and I deserve hell. I deserve judgment. But yet you died for me and your death means I don't have to die. And so today I believe in your death. I receive your gift and I trust you and your salvation alone, by faith alone in Christ Alone, we can have this salvation. Lord, I pray for those who are also struggling with their past as they think about the guilt, they think about the pain, they think about the hurt, the sorrow, and the difficulty of all that. Lord, help us to release these back to you and release our cares and cast them on you because we know you care for us. But Lord, we thank you for the example. May we walk with you this week. May we think about these things as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.